Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics of Gender. We're here in my um, flesh-toned geriatric socks, as they've been called recently. They're really awful. <laughs> regardless, they're the socks I've been given, and I am wearing them proudly. And we are here to continue our discussion on gender and actually to wrap it up for a season. We're done. Our big farewell. Forever. No. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Yeah, so we're, we're finishing up here because... We've got A to start a second season of Good Money, which if you have not yet heard, it's all sorts of fun. We basically rag on money for hours and hours on end, and you, as a poor person, get to listen to us. Um, and while we're doing that, we're going to be working on our just more academic arguments and our book on gender, mm-hmm. which is going to be rad. It's and be then really good. at some point in the future, we'll, we'll be back. Yeah. In a nebulous future. Yeah. But we want to wrap up in a good place here uh, rather than just leave you with a book review, which is where we were at last. We want to get back into some of my dissertation, um, some of my research on gender, and especially as it uh, is in the scriptures and the myths surrounding the scriptures. Um, and maybe it would be good to sort of summarize where we've arrived. Where we've arrived or how we got here. <laughs> From the beginning. <laughs> no, that's too much. Just watch the other episodes. You're right. Sorry, that's that's a dumb idea. Let's just talk. Okay. Well. Buckle up, guys. It's going to get weird. Yeah. So, I, well, I, I think it's fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I actually um, have, the, the, I very rarely have as much fun as in gendered worlds and gendered discussions. Well, I'll be honest that reading your uh, dissertation was exactly like that because the the first bit of your dissertation, which we've already done a podcast on, yeah, was... See liberalism, can yeah. gender... Queer theory and... Can queer theory and liberalism fit? fit work together? Work together yeah. uh, and you begin, and I mean, it, 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 it feels like you're reading a queer theory text. Yeah. Uh, and at a certain point, you kind of hit a wall, and just, it's just all dry. <laughs> it's no fun. And then you get to the end, and then we move into this next part that we're going to be discussing today, this theological, mythical turn. And all of a sudden, it gets exciting again because we're back in gendered worlds and stories and mythology. And that's yeah. just – that is the truly human, I think. Yeah. Stories. Our, uh, our main sponsor and best boy, Benjamin A. Boyce – shout out to Benjamin A. Boyce – said that he thinks that whatever the answer to gender is, it must be – mythological oh yeah i thought that was a great point yeah i I don't know what he meant by it but it sounds right (laughs) well i agree (laughs) i i think i think part of the the key uh is is symbolism and that's what um yeah myths are doing there it's sharing truth in a way that moves beyond just bare facts yeah um but we can get there when we let's get into it okay so just to sort of put my cards on the table here I do not think that our particular moment, call it what you will, the transgender moment, the great melting ice cube going from gender solidity to gender fluidity, call it capitalism, call it what you will. I do not think it is the first time that we have seen this kind of attitude towards gender. I think this is a repetition. I think this is something that we are prone as a human species to believe about reality and to promulgate as a social reality. Um, It is not a new construction. This is my fundamental problem that I have with most conservative reactions to the kind of gender craziness, as they might call it, 
which is that the situation is not one in which we're in a room being like, how is it possible that everyone here has such crazy ideas about gender when like, why just, is everyone just so insane it used to be so normal and it was all obvious and can't we just go back to that and can't you all look at yourselves in the shower and just shut up um that's not what's happening uh that would be rad i guess because it'd be easy yeah but, but it's as a lot it turns more... out nothing is ever yeah. easy and certainly not um, establishing as a actual habit of a society that doctrine, male and female, who created them. Not easy. Turns out it was one of the hardest things to do in human history and that the loss of it now is quite to be expected, um, that it's something that has to be – I mean what have we been talking about all this time? Constructions. It's something that has to be actively built or it goes away and, and alternate constructions will take its place. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not just a um, – look around and see it like it's easy peasy as much as people want that to be the case. And this is why I think conservatives are at this point losing the battle because not because they're wrong that you look out there that bodies inform us about a male female binary mm -hmm. that science shows us there's a male female binary that there's there's a definite sexual differentiation in every one of our cells all this all this good stuff. It's not that I think that they're wrong it's just that I think that they do not understand that there was a particular world, a particular construction in which those facts were evident and meant what they want them to mean. Namely, that we are man and woman in an exclusive binary fashion. Fair? I think so. <laughs> I but, kind of zoned out. Dude, I get it. When, uh, there's a certain tone that I have that it's totally acceptable to just stop listening. Okay. And I think I was there. <laughs> You like it's like a music thing. It's like, oh, this is the part of the musical where they're just like singing about their dreams, and I can, <laughs> I cannot listen to this. I'll have my own daydream. Thank you. It's more interesting. Um, uh, but <laughs> I, I, I guess another way of of putting it is that uh, it's it's the conservative confusion is like, well, where did all this come from? Why are people so suddenly insane? And if you just look at like look out on the the state of the United States and just kind of assume like like half the population is just in, insane mm -hmm. not seeing what led to a construction in which that kind of thinking is is possible um yeah you're just going to be an error about what the problem is and why we've gotten here you won't be able to see um some of our own problematic assumptions that we had already i think illich really brought that to light yeah like what we think of as gender today is just not what was thought yeah. of gender in the past mm -hmm. and so even an insight like that can help shift the focus but um the point you're bringing up is that uh this confusion about what it means to be man and woman um that's not it's not new no and when i, I was kind of expecting it to be new when i first started thinking about it because you know, it seemed like the narrative makes sense once there was a very natural sort of conservative understanding of man and woman and then things got, you know, insert problem here, sexual revolution, and now we can't quite understand such an obvious truth. Aren't we silly? Um, okay. What – I went with that narrative for a while, but then what I found is that whenever I went to uh, – well, what I did is I went to the Bible. Um, and then to understand the Bible, I started to look at um, – what the Bible was responding to. Um, so when Genesis, the Torah, it's not simply written in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I expected, I guess, a sort of consensus consensus within the ancient world of like, yeah, of course they got man and woman figured out. In fact, it's sometimes a comment we'll receive every now and then when we do this, which is like, uh, no civilization would ever have questioned this. This is like just the most basic thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And to some extent they're right because we have a certain difference in modernity in which we have this like literal sort of fixation. But if you mm -hmm. look at the myths of origins that people told about themselves, about their nations, about their people, what you have, I think, is a constant, constant arrival at the idea that man is an androgen, that the human person is fundamentally androgynous. And I'm going to refer to this as primal androgyny. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about all the different permutations primal androgyny can take. But what I'm saying is in my research, I found that if you want to talk about like what ancient sort of natural close to the earth societies just seem to end up thinking about the nature of the human person, if you're going to give them uh, the credit of saying their myths do express an anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, the anthropology that it expresses is primal androgyny. And the Jewish anthropology that is expressed in the doctrine or expressed in the law, the Torah, the descriptive part of Genesis that says – male and female, he created them, mm -hmm. that this is in a obvious distinction to the myths that surrounded them and preceded them. It is not them getting on board with the perennial ancient wisdom. Right. That is that is totally wrong. Um, but I think I should prove that rather than just say that. Yeah. So, so to bring it back to your earlier point, so the assertion that uh, of primal androgyny um, that that manifests itself in multiple places. It's not new. What's new is the way in which it's asserted mm -hmm. yeah, totally. or in the constructions that are built off of that primal totally. androgyny. Yeah. I think that what's happening right now is it, it's a new way of asserting primal androgyny. And it's a very new construction of primal androgyny that could not have happened without the move to what Illich calls economic sex. Yeah, but that totally. pattern has happened before, and I think that that's really helpful in seeing, yeah, see, seeing uh, our, our present moment as being a part of a pattern of human history to start to understand what are our motivations for why we make this move in mm -hmm. the first place. Yeah, yeah, because in a certain sense, I think it's unreasonable to believe the doctrine of primal androgyny. Uh, which is, you can say it in many ways, that man is fundamentally sexist, that man is fundamentally neutered, that man is only fundamentally receives male. Fundamentally male, or I guess fundamentally female, though rarely, only rarely does that happen. Mm -hmm. um, or that man is just otherwise um, only receives sexual difference as a certain subsequent contingent um, and ultimately not, not a lasting modification to his fundamental person. Um, so sex is something you sort of go through, but it's not something you're created as, or it's a on, on the second order of um, your becoming and not of the first order of your creation. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's just dive right in because... Um, yeah, let's look at some of the let's actual talk about some myths. myths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the expectation here is that a myth says something about what people think about themselves. Now, mm -hmm. that is a very broad category. It mean might mean what they want to think about themselves. It might certainly mean what an elite wants to think about themselves. It might certainly mean what uh, a sort of oral culture, as opposed to, say, a philosophical elite, thinks about themselves. Given all of this given the incredible amount of nuance you could do. And I won't because forget you guys. I'm just not. Still, <laughs> I think a myth says something true about what a people's, th what a people thinks about themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah, it's the it's the origin story. Yeah. Um. So to pull in some Aquinas, act follows being. Like if this is who we are from the beginning, and that's going to set the limits on the acts that we choose in the future. Yeah, yeah, and like again to just show a card here, I kind of basically follow Rene Girard on the meaning of myth, which is at its most basic that it's actually the difference between myth and what I would call um, revelation is myth is always trying to obscure something um, that's real. Um, and so you have a odd darkness and light within myth of a, of a revelation, but only because people are telling stories about themselves because of something they want to be true as opposed to something that is in fact true. Um, or I suppose you could look at Genesis as the myth that is actually corresponding to reality. Yeah, no, the, that, that's a sort of, I think Tolkien, right? Had this I think so. concept of Christianity as the true myth. Um, yeah, I am, I'm partial to that. No, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm vibing. <laughs> I'm vibing with the true myth stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a simple distinction. Are we telling lies about ourselves or are we telling the truth about ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, so, In Hesiod, that is to say, the guy that wrote all sorts of great ancient Greek stuff. <laughs> um, so in his origin story, his recounting of the origin story of the myth of Pandora, I think you have, I want to start with this one, not because I think it has as an immediate um, historical connection with the authors of Genesis, but it's something we're kind of familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, in Hesiod, you've got a basic account of the beginning. And in the beginning, it was only guys. <laughs> it ruled. It was the island of only men, which is a thought experiment I often use. <laughs> and on this island of only men, everything was great. It was even golden. They ended up calling it that just because of how awesome it was. The, the golden, golden age. The golden age. Of only and, males. <laughs> and of course, men were immortal. They did not die. They did not reproduce because if you don't die, who needs to reproduce? And they had great power and strength and they lived among the gods to the point that there's a certain blurring of the distinction between gods and men. Mm -hmm. They're all getting along together in some way. Um, the important thing to note right here, and, and I'm just going to not say it after this. If there are only males then there are no males. If there are only females, there are no females. Male as a meaningful term mm -hmm. is only understood in relation to the female that it's not. Female as a meaningful term is only understood in relation to the male that it's not. So whenever you have a society that casts its mind back to an origin story and says there were only males, this is an instance of primal androgyny because what has been lost is sexual difference. Mm -hmm. And so the male... And this is why I think it's kind of one of these clues that, okay, I think they're telling stories about themselves that aren't true because you're using the term male, which obviously presumes the female in yeah. existence, but only to negate. Mm -hmm. So only males obviously indicates females. Otherwise, you would say something like only humans or whatever. But it's in relation to the coming female that they're only males. But the point is you have a primal androgyny here. You have a, a lack of sexual difference. Um, and so, as you'll see, you have a presence of divinity because wherever we try to be divine or to express the divine in some ways, we tend to negate sexual difference in ourselves as a way of showing that we're actually divine because sexual difference obviously is tied up in death, um, in the need for reproduction. We'll say more of that. Yeah, yeah. We'll say Point that. is, it's the golden age and all the boys are happy. 
but then there's a problem, which is the best boy, Prometheus. The best uh, boy. <laughs> I like this version. He tricks. <laughs> I've told this story a few times at like talks and stuff. I'm getting bored of it. So I'm going off script. Anyways, the best boy tricks the, all the other gods um, into getting the inferior portion of the sacrificial meal, which previously was shared somewhat equitably between mm. gods and men. Um, and the gods are very pissed off and they decide, well, we've been tricked as to the meal and you shall be tricked as to the woman. And so the gods construct themselves a woman. And it's even the language is really cool here because it's like man is just made or, or not even made. He's just there. Yeah. He's immortal. But woman is like mecha mechanically built by the gods. They all get together and they add different parts and – uh, and they build Pandora, right, uh, who is famous for her radio station and for <laughs> everything bad in the world, including the radio station. <laughs> um, because it always leads to Coldplay. It does. Yeah, no matter what. You can start with like Bach and it's like, hmm, sounds like Coldplay. And then you're listening to Coldplay. All right. So Pandora is this trick. Um Men accept her into their home. I forget the name of the guy that does it actually. Um, but from that point on, man is inaugurated into a life of death, of reproduction, of weakness, of lack, of want. Um, and the golden age is over. So it's really important is that sexual difference is a fall. Mm -hmm. You had a certain Eden, an Edenic situation. And then you have the differentiation of man into male and female. Uh, which is simultaneous, coterminous, concomitant with fall, misery, death. No mm -hmm. longer being divine. Okay, so that's one. And and woman in this case is like a trick or a seducer. She's someone who keeps man down. Mm -hmm. She's prevents him from living in divine bliss. Yep. Okay. Seven. And I think yep. that this myth, far from just being an oddity of the hairy sweaty greeks bless them is in fact pretty much repeated in different formats um so i looked at the epic of gilgamesh um it has two it's kind of hard to say exactly who was first telling the story but generally we call it something sumerian mm -hmm. um so certainly something that the um jews were in contact with um and there's a i, I love the epic of gilgamesh i think it's it's really cool uh, it's where we get – if you ever hear a new atheist being like really big brain and being like, did you know that the Bible is really just like these stories from these these pagan cultures that are like the real deal and, and your religion is phony, they're usually talking about uh, Atrahasis and Gilgamesh mm -hmm. with a couple other Egyptian things. Um, the reason they're dumb is because, yeah, we knew. It's like, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think we were writing except for to destroy the myths and replace them with our own? It's like, what did you think Christianity was about if not world domination? It's like they, they can't <laughs> – it's like they say these things. Like, isn't Christianity just about, like, taking over all – and we're like, yes. yes. <laughs> so anyways. <laughs> okay, so, so in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's this really great story. I think it's actually one of the most fascinating because you have – a scene of primal androgyny where you have a um, uh, Enkidu is the name of this of this creature, and and he's alone. Mm -hmm. So if you recall that part of Genesis, not good for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. It was really good for Enkidu to be alone. He loved it. He was like the man. He just played with the animals. He was covered in hair. He he was living his best life every day. And there was a hunter 
um, that was trying to catch some animals and eat them up and was despised Enkidu because what Enkidu, he was so, he was so strong and so fast and so divine in quality that he would tear open the hunter's traps and rescue all the animals. And then the animals and he, he would run together and frolic in the fields, much to the chagrin of said hunter who, of course, decided to hire a prostitute to fix this problem. Um, so off he goes. I'm going to read the, the, the translation I have here. Um, he pursues the help of a female prostitute, potentially a sacred prostitute, but I'm not getting into that, uh, and demands that this prostitute treat the savage man to the skills of a woman. So she does. It's a little bit, it's a little bit um, PG, maybe even PG-13, because <laughs> what they do is they uh, copulate for seven days and nights, um, uh, which, I don't know, sounds difficult. But as a result, it's really fascinating because as a result, it's said that Enkidu loses this, everything he has. He loses all his, of his sort of glorified animal-friendly existence. Um, after he was sated with her charms, it says, he set his face towards his animals. But when the gazelles saw him, Enkidu, they ran away. And he asks the woman why now he's somehow detached from this Again, Edenic situation. What happened? Why was the encounter with the woman a fall? Um, and she says he has been given through this intelligence, wisdom. He is like a god. Um, but this godliness is ambiguous because it's also his, again, it's an introduction to mortality. Now he must die. Mm -hmm. um, and he blames the woman and later on in the epic. He blames her for... Uh, ever bringing him into this sort of civilized mode of being with the best curse of woman that I've ever heard. If you think your misogyny is good, try Enkidu. May the place of thy, uh, oh, <laughs> the place of thy festivities, may the drunken defile with vomit. <laughs> Which is just harsh. <laughs> so I'm going to try it out later. Um, it's creative. On some women. Creative anger. Yeah. Everyone needs to try it. <laughs> so Gilgamesh is, um, uh, sorry, Enkidu is, is mad. And he's mad for this ambiguous curse of mortality that is introduced by unity with the woman. I think there's a lot more you could say about that. Um, but for now, what's important is this thematic similarity, namely that prior to the woman, you have uh, a paradise. After it, you have the world in, in, a, mm -hmm. in a, an entry into history, into reality, but that's also an entry into death, into mortality. So, so... I think this repeats. Um, I'll breeze through a few others. In Atrahasis, it's a similar situation. Um, it's it's a little different in that there are, I think, men and women, but they are angering the gods because they are um, becoming too numerous. Mm -hmm. And they're actually very noisy. The gods don't like how noisy they are. And so <laughs> there's a destruction and then there's a recreation of people. But this time, women are created as, again, that limiting... Um, influence on divinity so if prior to this the um people were a threat to the divine in mm -hmm. some way now it says that um humanity is recreated to include among the peoples women who bear and women who do not bear so women are introduced now as a limiting principle um, that means that man will no longer compete with the divine which is again obviously expressed in plato's symposium um, in aristophanes myth, which is probably the one we're most familiar with, mm -hmm. maybe. 
which is did we talk about this on yeah, the podcast because we, we talked yeah. about the round Roly-poly. oh so we probably shouldn't humans. do this again this will become obnoxious to people if we just make fun of well some people might not people. have heard of the roly-poly men all right I think they want to know here we go <laughs> aristophanes after a drunken night of um really inappropriate talk about little boys decides to say this about love that it is in fact the result of our primal androgyny so he just goes right mm-hmm. right for it and he's very he's very literal here in a way that you could compare to some of the um uh some of the jewish commentary tradition um that the androgen is not just this lack of the female um it is in fact a combination male female that negates sexual difference because mm-hmm. it unifies it as it is unified in say a plant um the image he describes as this big round person with with the genitals of male and female on either side and two heads sort of facing the other way and lest you think that this is an awkward scenario uh he says that they were strong and threatened to climb up olympus and overpower the gods i don't understand (laughs) it would it seems hard to climb a mountain i feel like one guy's doing the work and the other guy is just I guess that's the point that they are in concert because they're one being. But it's hard not to think of the guy in the back just sort of like sc- scrabbling up his... against the air. <laughs> the other guy's like carrying him like a backpack. Which one's the woman? That's the question. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, the one being carried. Yeah. Are you even? Are you even a Catholic feminist? No, 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 no. no there, there, there is no, there is no male. Or female. I know. I'm just They're joking. Just... It's gone. It's been eradicated into the myth of primal Although androgyny. Origin does believe <laughs> that our resurrected bodies will be spherical because because mm, it's the perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? You know, the joke is that only Origin's body ends up spherical because of that. I really hope so. To the delight, to the delight of the blessed. Yeah. <laughs> You heard about like Tertullian, sort of like, you know, the pains of hell uh, are the pleasures of heaven because you like get to sit and watch God's justice. <laughs> what if it's that only? It's the, the spherical nature of origin is the delight of the blessed. Um, okay, so in this so in the in this myth, Zeus cuts uh, up these round those re, these these rotund um, uh, female male composites uh, into their constitutive parts, or rather, he then makes them into parts for the very first time and they ever after go around looking for their lost other um, half half and this is actually for him a description of like lesbianism and um i guess homosexuality oh yeah that's right because it's not it's not as simple as like everyone's a male female half it's there's some anyways it's just your soulmate who's out there mm -hmm, which was makes sense for what kind of state they were trying to achieve which i will say a little more about in a sec um um, but the point is, to divide man is to weaken him, right? The, the the fundamental continuity with the rest of the myths is that man, without sexual difference, encroaches on the divine. He's a risk of – like he risks being divine, so the gods have to deal with him. Sexual mm-hmm. difference, once again, is a fall. Sexual difference is a weakening. Yeah, so there's kind of two, two themes, um, and, and they show up differently. So it's not going to be like one for one in every single myth, obviously, but – um, the theme of androgyny comes up a lot, and then also that connection with uh, man trying to be divine, and then mm-hmm. woman being a fall or some kind of limiting principle. Like all these things are just yeah around, but then like put together differently. Totally, and and it comes in like you can see it in 
Philo, Philo, how do you say that? I don't know. All right, let's not try. Uh, it's Philo. Uh, <laughs> and you can see it in some of the church fathers' temptations to describe the male-female creation. This is like early Augustine. He ends up repudiating yeah. it as a allegory for mind and body. Right. And so you have the principle of mind becoming essentially enmeshed in some way in body, which is represented mm -hmm. by the woman, Eve. Um, as opposed to Adam, who is the male principal mind. And this is actually, I think, a temptation to repeat primal androgyny because it's it's vaguer because it is allegorical. So I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I'm not criticizing them directly, but it does have this tendency to repeat this idea of the differentiating, the difference, the introduction of twofoldness, bifurcation um, is a loss, is mm -hmm. a loss, which I think is, is quite wrong. The last thing I'll say is this. Um, the we've been talking about these within constructions and so i, I just wanted to point out that like th these these myths that tr try to tend the person towards a theoretical and never arriving sexlessness um had a political purpose so this is the argument of dang it vigdis solaim solaim i'm sorry i'm ruining it um I'll just read what she wrote here. She's describing um, the Athenians uh, who developed a founding myth, not just for humanity, which they probably already would have held something like what Hesiod describes, but for their city mm -hmm. uh, in which the first Athenian is the result of a male-only um, reproduction or production. Um, basically, uh, somebody's chasing Athena. Um, um, Hephaestus? Hephaestus? Mm. Lusting after the virgin goddess Athena, he chases her, uh, but she escapes his clutches as goddesses are wont to, and his seed fell on the ground, which became fertilized, and later gave birth to the first ruler of Athens. So in the city of Athens, um, they were mythologically enabled to claim their origin, not in sexual division, but in a womanless form of reproduction. Mm -hmm. This becomes really important for this particular philosopher because she's arguing that it's sort of the origin of sexism, uh, which whatever we think about that, I just want to open a little door here and say it's not just origin myths strictly like, like the protoplast, the first human, the first man, uh, and the first woman. The question also concerns the place of women within the present social order, mm -hmm. right? Like wherever women are considered, um, and it could be men, it just never is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wherever women are considered as essentially um, alterations or de-evolutions or privations of the male in some way, you have this, this myth of primal androgyny, right? The real thing is in fact male. Mm -hmm. And the female comes as a modification of the real right. thing, which means that at its within its perfection, male is without female. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Which is not true, yeah. but it is something held. And then I, I like that uh, Vigdis points out that it has political implications. I mean, this is why we call yeah. it the politics of, of gender, because our, our origin stories shapes how we construct the world. And so... Um, in in Athens, there are only male citizens because that's the truly human, and woman is a, a modification, or like she kind of takes the yeah the the class of child or slave. Totally. Yep. 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 Okay. 
So that might seem obvious to us who are very enlightened. We're like, oh, obviously they're just justifying their own social order. But that's not a critique of what I'm saying. I'm saying that's precisely what myths do. Mm -hmm. They're in a fruitful relationship with a constructed social order and they move back and forth so that the myth inspires the kind of order and the order defines the kind of myth. Mm -hmm. And you can't really point one to the other in a causal way because yeah, the point is we're constructing. Yeah, because myths change over time. Totally change. Passed on. Right. And we do this right now. It's like we, we yeah, anyways, we'll get there. All right. So now the next part of this is my argument about <laughs> Genesis, which is not really like an argument. This is an established fact within, within the literature, but I'll just say it, um, that Genesis is a polemic. Mm -hmm. So whether you think that the blessed Moses wrote the thing or whether you think that he kind of wrote the thing and then there's other authors or whatever uh, sort of biblical um, – criticism you uh, ascribe to. Mm -hmm. What seems obvious is that it is a critique. It is a critique of the cultures surrounding the Jewish people, uh, which is simply makes sense because what the law is, is a effort to make the Jewish people not like the nations around them. And it right. says this explicitly many, 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 many times. Mm -hmm. But then we read something like Genesis and we think, oh, well, they're just saying their own thoughts like about how things started. It's fake because it looks like other myths. Right. It's like, no, in the exact same way that it's the same law that's saying you cannot be like the other nations that is saying, here's how you were first made. Mm -hmm. And we can't distinguish these things. Um, if you want someone smarter than me to tell you that, I recommend uh, Ratzinger's little book on the creation. Mm. Check it out. It's good stuff. All right. So how do, so Genesis is a attack on the myths. Sometimes I call it demythologizing, but if that is scandalous because you think it's attacking a myth through a myth, then don't use that term. It's just making an argument against them through a description. This is not to say it's a false description or like a purely utilitarian description. I in fact think that it's describing reality, mm -hmm. um, but it's reality described in such a way to destroy lies about reality, to destroy false, crude. Um, yeah, it's not a of story mind. of everything. No, it's 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 a conversation with the other nations. Totally is because the Jews are pulled out of the other the nations, nations and mm -hmm. have a tendency to go back to the other nations. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So look at the text. I think the most obvious demythologizing that's happening is that things that other people worship as gods around the Jews are right. being said to be creatures of the one God. Because mm -hmm. um, if this is a fundamental distinction between creature and created, all you have to do is tell a story in which you're talking about the creation of things. So, you know, uh, we, and, and this I think also explains why the creation story of Genesis has the certain boundaries it does. Like, why doesn't it talk about the creation of mountains or why doesn't it talk about, I don't know, clouds or, um, um, I don't know, atoms or basic minerals. I don't know. It's like, yeah. the point yeah. is that it makes a kind of selection of mm -hmm. what it's going to talk about being created. And I think you can make a lot of sense out of that selection by saying, oh, all these things are gods for other right. people. Mm -hmm. So you've got like the sun and moon who are worshipped by the Hittites. You've got the earth and the sky who are worshipped by the Sumerians as god and goddess. You have the most obvious one being the animal and the plant idols of the Egyptians, mm -hmm. um, which is made fun of not just simply in Genesis, but in Deuteronomy as being a appalling um, construction, an appalling way of living to worship things that are so obviously beneath man. Yeah. So the point is it's a, it's a work of demotion. Everything is being demoted um, 
as opposed to God who creates them. And the way it does this, and I've said this before, so I won't go too far into it, but but there's a there's a thematic repetition of demythologization in which <laughs> in which things are created, separated, and then named. It's this threefold movement in which something is not God, really not God. Oh my gosh, definitely not, not God. God. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we'll take that one at a time because it's totally relevant to what's about to happen, which is the male-female distinction. Mm -hmm. Um so being separated. This is obvious throughout the Genesis story. God separated light from darkness, day from night, sea from land. It's not just separation as in like two things that were one become apart. It's precisely because a being that is separated, or rather, let me, let me back it up. Things are only intelligible by their relations to their opposites, to their complements, to other things in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So if everything was land, we wouldn't know what land is. But because land is separated from sea, we have the twofold, the kind of bifurcated distinction where we can understand land as land as opposed to just everything. Yeah. Well, maybe we can back it up because I, I think that might be a new concept for some okay. people listening. Back because I, I mean, I can see someone going like, well, of course we would have a concept of land. Like we would get a, give it a name, but sure. um, how how we understand the thing fundamentally changes because of its relationship with other things. So yes. for example, you could take a um, pencil. Like how do we understand a, a pencil fundamentally in relation to other things? Like I can write with it. Yeah. And so within the notion of the pencil, um, within like almost you could say the essence of the, the pencil is the existence of things outside of itself. Totally. Otherwise, we cannot comprehend it. If nothing else in the universe existed but the pencil, like, the way the pencil. that we conceive of it is just – it's utterly meaningless. Yeah, and, when you t and, and the important point here is that it reveals a thing as having a limited essence, right? So it's not so much – yeah, I'm not saying like you wouldn't deal with land in some – way if everything was land or if there's no sea. But the point is that when you separate things, you show that they do not have a limitless extension, mm -hmm. that they have a particular essence, um, that they are not this, mm -hmm. right? So the land is not the sea, the sea is not the land. And so both sea and land are limited in some ways. Um, and that's important because of this declaration that they are not divine. Because obviously only God has this... Um, has a kind of perfection to himself where um, he has in some ways you can say he's body. everything. Yeah, the <laughs> spherical body of God. Um, so God can be God alone. I mean, this is this is a sort of traditional doctrine of the church that there is not like a need for creation, right? So mm -hmm. God does not become God, become perfected in who he is by separating out creation from himself right. or anything like that. Um, he doesn't require any exterior relation for his intelligibility, uh, Aquinas says, uh, calls God the being who is perfectly comprehending himself. Um, and so you have a assurance that a thing cannot be considered as God precisely insofar as it can only be considered as being a limited being in relation to something that it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it, if it can be separated, um, if it can be related to another thing, if it has if if another thing has something that it does not have, yeah, then it totally. cannot that's, be that's God. A, I should have just said that. There's a really good uh, Hugh of St. Victor. Is it Hugh of St. Victor? Hugh. No, uh, yeah, no, no. Hilary uh, Poitier, who says, I love this line. I think it's just awesome. Um, this is in yeah, On the Trinity. His, uh, he says, um, 
Yeah. He says that a female god, the reason that... Okay, I'll just read it. God doesn't need reproduction. He doesn't need sexual difference. Um, the inability for that which is self-existent to have... Oh, he's pointing to the inability for that which is self-existent, God, to have any being superior to itself. So a female God would be superior to a male God in respect of her femaleness. And this is what he says. It could not hold that neglect of a world created by himself was worthily to be attributed to God, or that deities endowed with sex and lines of begetters and begotten were compatible with the pure and mighty nature of the Godhead. Nay, rather, it was sure that that which is divine and eternal must be one without distinction of sex, for that which is self-existent cannot have left outside itself anything superior to itself. So, I think that's rad, and it also shows, um, I'm kind of anticipating the sexual difference thing, but it also shows the um, demythologizing of, of a separation, which shows that things have things superior um, exterior to themselves as opposed to the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think that makes sense. Okay, so God creates, creates and he, he separates, separates, and then um, he names. And so this is a part of the Genesis account. Um, naming more so, I think, in the ancient world, but still obviously today expresses dominion, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't name ourselves. Nothing names itself. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a reason why God traditionally has no name. Like he takes on a name, but God in himself. Yeah, he can name himself. But... Like we say, he's named God, which is ridiculous. <laughs> God is the thing we invented when we worshiped gods who were really men and then the thing that God <laughs> willfully humbled himself to be referred to as our God. That's why mm-hmm. he's called God. Um, another thing that the atheists don't really no, get, no. but you know what? We're not talking with them. Only our people in this room, Maria. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I was just trying out identity politics. <laughs> See what happens. Um, so God names, I quote, apparently, the words of Isaiah, who says, Mm -hmm. I have called you by name, you are mine. And that's a template, right? So the being named expresses a certain dominion, a loving dominion, let's hope, of God to his um, creation. So when he names things, um, he's expressing that. Yeah, and his naming is simultaneous with the creation, right? Because Because God spoke. And so his speaking, his naming brings that thing into being. Yeah. So it's not like uh, he just waved his hand, then mm-hmm. it appeared, then yeah. he separated them, and then he gave them names. The, yeah. the naming is the creating. Yeah. And so the, the kind of creation that appears after this radical creation, separation, and naming is immensely fragile and grateful before the divine. It has no ability to stand on its own. It does not assert itself as a primal reality. Um, it, it speaks within the Genesis text of coming from another um, and having this kind of fundamental surprising contingency to it. So this runs into some problems when you get to the text uh, in terms of animals and plants mm-hmm. um, because you, you lose that God separated this from that, um, which is maybe most evident in like the sun and the moon, right? Where mm-hmm. the sun uh, has the authority, is given rule over the day and the moon is given rule over the night where mm-hmm. you can see in the use of that term of rule you see quite literally that these things cannot be gods because and they have separate domains they have separate domains of authority 
um, which is why the sun and moon image becomes the male-female image throughout the Jewish literature is because there's an anticipation of what Illich describes as as domains of real authority that mm-hmm. can be higher, can be put on, yes. can be ordered, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but never ordered in terms of who has authority and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's the domain itself um, that's distinct. So with animals, there is separation of the animals. It's just hidden in the words he created them according to their kind mm-hmm. because they are separated for the sake of reproduction. This is the male-female separation or what we will refer to as male-female within the animals, but which I think means something different when applied to man. Um, and And this is simply to say that what is achieved for the sun and moon by this sort of deliberate description of them being separate or the land and the sea, earth and the sky is achieved for the plants and the animals in terms of their um, separation for the sake of reproduction. Right? So what I mean to say is the being that reproduces is obviously not God. Um, This is something the church fathers wrote about a lot uh, when they were critiquing all the Roman gods that it was basically like their big own where they would be like, oh, you think these guys are gods, but they reproduce. QED, <laughs> moving on. Uh, Arnobius boasts of the opinions of wise men who cannot restrain their laughter when they hear distinctions of sex attributed to the immortal gods. Uh, Lactantius, who I love this quote, so I'll read it. He says, if the gods therefore are immortal and eternal, what need have they of another sex? Goes on to say, what need of... Yeah, okay. So the point is simply this. There's still there's still separation among the animals. Separation among the animals for and it procreation shows, and within the different animals that are created. And it shows because, that they're not God. Yeah. It, it because God is sufficient to Himself. He does not mm-hmm. need anything to persist in being. Um, and so wherever you have separation for the sake of reproduction, which Aquinas will later talk about, how like the species only survives as uh, a real thing insofar as there's it's constantly reproducing itself mm-hmm. this is a eminent sign of its weakness right? yeah and then uh, you could probably also repeat the sun and moon imagery like having like different domains because different species can't produce with each other yeah okay so there goes genesis just really destroying all so the gods not gods yeah is our conclusion. having named everything as not god except god it then it then naturally comes to man, mm-hmm. and I think this is important to view this like as a certain peak of concern for the right. Jews because we tend to think of it the creation account as a sort of growing um, complexity in nature, a growing perfection, and all that's true, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. But the other side of that coin is a growing concern for the possibility of idolatry, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have more and more possibility of seeing something as a God. It does seem that historically what the Jews are most concerned about is seeing man as a God. Right. Um, well, I mean, historically they're just concerned about idolatry. idolatry I mean, that yeah. is the major theme totally. of the Bible. Yep. And um, spoilers, all the gods were really men. And I think <laughs> the Bible knows this and is so doing a kind of r- revelation of the fact that the things that people are worshiping, the things that people are worshiping that aren't the true God are in fact man. They're in fact, yeah, whether it's actually a man or a man's devices that he's using to get people to worship 
something so that he can have, have power. more power over mm -hmm. others. Like that is what the Bible is revealing is that religion um, is usually oppressive um, in a way for some people to appear as, as divine um, over and against uh, the rest. Yeah. So, um, okay. So then you get to man and you have the threefold um, knocking of mm -hmm. the man off of his pedestal where first he is created. Obviously mm -hmm. that's the fundamental distinction. If he's created, he's not a creator. Then you have his sep well, you have his, um, I'll just skip that. You have his naming. Mm -hmm. He's man. Um, and then you have his separation. Mm -hmm. And this is the point within the scriptures that you should expect it to say he's created according to his kind and to have the same kind of separation that you had with the animals, right? Mm -hmm. For the sake of reproduction, etc. But in fact, what you have is the first instance of the words male and female, where he says uh, male and female, he created them. Um, I think that male-female sexual difference is not the same as animal sexual difference. But it's not our argument for today. Right. I am quite convinced of this. Um, and and I will speak about it at great length. But unfortunately, I must restrain myself. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Don't yeah, don't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, so I'm restraining myself because it is the best topic in the world. And instead, I'm just gonna point out that the same thing that applied to the sun and the moon is present here in the male female. Mm-hmm distinction that it's not simply for the sake of reproduction. It's not simply for the sake of what comes after be fruitful and multiply, but in itself, it establishes man as fundamentally not God. God. The yeah. woman makes the man, not God. The man makes the woman, not God. There is no possibility of a divinity in which the, the divine has something superior to itself outside of itself. Mm -hmm. I am only male because there's a thing that, that I am not, that I lack, which is female. And female is only what she is in relation to a lack. And so who we are is established in weakness um, in, com in comparison to the creator. Fair so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, what, to, what to, I, no, go ahead. Well, I just want to like to, to, to end this point is that this is what I mean to say when I say it's something different than the myths is that. It's not just that man isn't God. It's that it's a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's an important point. Um, I think I, I talked about it on a previous podcast, but especially the, the word that's used to describe woman, like she in Genesis is not seducer or trickster. She is helpmate. Um, and totally if you, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't put it into the context of the conversation that Genesis is having with the other myths, you could just say that it's sexist. Yeah. Like, oh, look, she's a subordinate servant. Like, mm -hmm. actually, no, this is a, this is a great compliment. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a great improvement <laughs> yeah, totally. based off of the stories that were going, uh, around. Um, yeah. So, so being created is fundamentally good. I mean, this is something that God repeats over and over throughout the creation story, yep. um, being male and female, being not God is fundamentally good. And this distinguishes it from the myths in which sexual difference is the fall. So mm -hmm. that's the point at which the good thing is lost. So if sexual difference is always of the order of the fall in the myths, in the scriptures, it's always of the order of creation. So that thing which God declares very good is always and already a male-female creation. 
Um, and this is the assertion. This would, I think, have appeared strange it would have, and, and would require a lot of constructing for it to have a fittingness to the world around mm -hmm. it. It's just to say this male-female thing, this is the positive intention of the divine, perfect creator. He wanted this. He loves it. And we should love it too. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't just think that. I think other people thought that. So other people thought that. Uh, I love this, this, this here, which is Rashi. Yeah, that's that's what I found probably the most interesting when I was reading this. Yeah, the rabbinic tradition, right? Yeah, yeah. He's just a, a part of it. I think he had a couple authors. Yeah, there's a few. Remember. I'll have to narrow it down for the sake of time. But we have a tradition that is sort of woefully infested with like evangelical, like pop theology or whatever about this verse, it is not good for man to be alone, mm -hmm. where it's always taken sentimentally as meaning like Adam is just this mopey man. Oh, poor lonely Adam. That's laying not under good. the trees and dreaming about women. And then you get this weird interpretation of the animals where like they're paraded by him so that he can see that they're distinct in male, female. Where's my lioness? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, which there's probably some truth too, but it just seems like what I learned from the Jewish tradition here is that there's another way of looking at it, which makes good sense. Um, and I should say, interpretations of scripture do not negate other interpretations of scripture here. So I'm not saying that some other meaning is not present Wait, when I say there's meaning. There are multiple layers. Yes. It's like an ogre, you know? Or an onion. <laughs> Rashi explains God as reasoning to himself. And John Paul II makes a big deal about this, that when he decides to create woman, it's like God turns to himself, reasons with himself. Um, God says, I shall make a help for him in order that people may not say that there are two deities. Just like, whoa, what are we talking about here? That doesn't seem like the normal way of describing it. Um, so he's commenting on this verse. It's not good for man to be alone. And he gives a older uh, story, a midrash. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, I am alone in my world. And Adam also is alone in his world. There is no propagation, reproduction before me. That is to say, I don't do this silly reproducing thing. And this one, Adam, has no propagation in his life. Hereafter, so this is the concern, all the creatures will say, oh, since there's no propagation in his life, and since he is alone, it is he who created us. That is to say, Adam. It's Adam who created us. And then he returns to that verse. It is not good mm -hmm. for man to be alone. So the interpretation here is that this not good for man to be alone is precisely because his, his being alone, his being without that separation, risks being mistaken for divinity. Yeah. And it's a, it's really a mistake. It's an illusion. It's not as if God created Adam and then is afraid like, ah, he will topple me from my throat. Yeah. 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 yeah no, cause he's talking about a, it, we, we have to let it be mythological in its language, but because it's fighting myths, mm -hmm. but there is this theological problem. If you try to take Genesis literally here, literally here, because mm -hmm. if you say that it's true that it is not good for man to be alone. You also have the simultaneous statement that God looked on all his works and declared them very good. And if they are all very good, A, that excludes not good, but it also would create 
a very odd situation if we were going to argue that God could have created a world with a privation in it. Yeah, he because then God evil. would be responsible for an evil, yeah. which seems which seems super wrong. Mm -hmm. So we're we are, I think, reasonably, and I think this is how most people read it before they get all hung up on some kind of, I don't know, literal. Yeah, literal yeah. interpretation of Genesis. Um, when we read it, we do not say, "Oh, God created an evil, so He could fix it later," because mm -hmm. that's insane. Um, God only creates good. He loves everything he made, including man. But we can read it as uh, John Paul sort of looks at it, which is a uh, somewhat of a hypothetical. Like um, to say it is not good for man to be alone means it's not possible for man to be alone. That is man as man cannot be man alone. Mm -hmm. If he is, he's an illusion. He's something not real. He's something yeah. that can be mistaken. He's certainly mistaken. not the same thing. Right. Yeah, you'd be positing like a, a third thing, like a yeah. different nature. Yeah, yeah, something else. Um, and so right there you have this intuition that sexual difference confirms the goodness of humanity precisely in its not being God. Mm -hmm. So man is created, he's separated, he is named, he is called very good. Um, but this this work isn't really finished until it's described as, as a male-female difference. Um, and so when Eve is a help, she is, with. if you start with this text, Rashi's text, she is a help from idolatry. Mm -hmm. uh, and this coincides with, with a lot of other um, descriptions, especially in the book of Sirach, where, um, well, I won't, I won't go there for now. But the you have a fundamentally different world being asserted, which mm -hmm. sexual difference is good. And it's good precisely because it allows man to glory and rejoice in his not being God, mm -hmm. which is what is unique about the Jews. Like they are the people who are happy to hear that they're not divine. Um, and when you compare this to the myths, you see that, I mean, they're just doing the opposite thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the creation of woman, you could see her in two different ways. Uh, I think in your dissertation, you describe her as a prophylactic. That sounds uh, mean. <laughs> uh, I was I was excited because it was a fun word. Um, so you can you can see her as this like kind of prevention against man's self idolatry yeah. of making himself a god. Um, but. I don't think it's helpful to just see a woman in terms of that alone. That makes sense in the context of a fall. Um, but if God made human nature and it's fundamentally good, it means it's fundamentally oriented towards some good. So yeah. a woman being helpmate isn't just, oh, isn't she helpful to keep him from doing something bad? Yeah. Um, but she she is a revelation to Adam of his creatureliness and this is good and this yeah. causes him to rejoice yeah. and the same dynamic works vice versa. Totally. Yeah. It's only in relation to the actual history, what actually happened, which is idolatry mm -hmm. that you can speak of the woman as being created to prevent idolatry. Yeah. Right. Um, because before the fall, that wasn't even, yeah. certainly you could not describe that as an intention. Um, um, and just to kind of, give a preview of what's to to come like the reason why this revelation brings you so much joy is because uh in order to have a relationship with something you have to know it mm. and so if you 
don't, if you can't differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself from God, yeah. um, if you don't have a definitive experience of your own creatureliness, then you don't know him. Totally. And you can't rejoice in who he actually is. And so it's in the revelation of my own creatureliness that I can actually experience the joy and intimacy of knowing God as he is. Yeah. And, and the supreme nature of his gift, right? Because if we are God as a sort of nature thing, like we just, then, then we don't stand in awe for all the obviously God-like things that we receive. Mm-hmm. because they are received as gifts. I do think this. I think intellect is received as a gift. I think that um, obviously our adoption into the Trinity is is the supreme gift. Um, but yeah, if we're simply, if that simply follows out as in pantheism, where like, well, we already are kind of God. So that's just what happens the way mm-hmm. that when you... Yeah, like I'm already basically self-sufficient. Yeah. Which I think just brings us like a restlessness. Like, why can't I... Why can't I actualize my self-sufficiency then? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think this is also confirmed in the mystical tradition of the church too. Like you have this weird paradox that you have these mystics who are experiencing like ecstatic joy. Yeah. Um, and yet are calling themselves miserable wretches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, I do remember reading that and being like really confused. Um, but then once you start immersing yourself in scripture, immersing yourself in the fathers and you go back to the mystic tradition and then, I mean, first of all, like coming from your own experience in prayer, suddenly it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like actually coming to terms with who I am before God, that's yeah. the only way that I can receive him and yeah. know him because otherwise I'm loving and knowing an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Now we're going to get to the primal androgyny more generally, but I think as a sort of proof of concept, I just want to really quick go through what this description of Genesis means for the fall um, so that we can have a kind of thick notion of it um, and then ask ourselves the question, okay, so what does it mean to lose this as the story, to lose this as the narrative? Because I don't think we can understand primal androgyny except for in its in its negation of this revelation here um at least not now so Mm -hmm. all right so i think it's not good for uh what page are you at i'm on 88 okay sweet i think that it is not good for man to be alone is a critique of primal androgyny Mm -hmm. right and that that that's pretty much what we're still saying whenever we try to defend in some ways a male female binary uh we're going back to those words and i think this is this makes a little more sense out of the fall, because if the fall for the pagans is a fall into sexual difference, then it's precisely the reverse for the Jewish tradition, for the Christian tradition, that a fall away from God is a fall into increasing sameness, mm-hmm. into a lack of difference, into a androgynous position. And this makes sense. So we think about the fall. What happens? Serpent, devil comes to Eve tells her to eat the fruit because she's going to what? Be like God. She says, alrighty, eats the fruit, gives it to her husband. They disobey the law and they are kicked out of the garden. Okay. Mm-hmm. Basic primer on how things went sour. Um, but I think you can look at this basic narrative as a turn towards the androgynous ideal of the nations um, as opposed to the differentiated ideal of the original creation. 
Mm-hmm. So I had this problem with the church fathers because they they are my dad. It's true, <laughs> but it seemed to me this constant thing that whenever they described the fall, they would always say things that just seemed patently untrue to me about why the devil went after the woman. Mm-hmm. Because they would say things like, um, she is by nature more passionate, more earthly, more prone to vice and easier target basically like you go for the woman because that's an easy deal which has to me just seems very problematic i don't need to make the obvious feminist critique of like it seems like there's some projection going on there boys (laughs) um that's too obvious there's also a theological problem of like i understand degrees not being a privation Mm -hmm. but like it really does sound like you're approaching a like if, if you have like a weak link in the chain, it seems like there's something pre-fallen as it yeah. were about the human family. Mm-hmm. Um, not that she needs to be – anyways, the so there's that problem. And then it also just doesn't jive with a, another axiom of Christian thought. I'm quoting this from Aquinas, but he's getting it from the, the fathers that when the devil approaches someone, he bestows an honor for the devil approaches saints, right? And what this means is that it's not self-evident that the devil approaches the weaker party. He, in order to tempt man away from God, it would make sense from our reading here that he tempts precisely the, the resistance to idolatry in order mm-hmm. to get idolatry. Like if it's the case that in the actual historical creation, woman, for whatever mysterious reason, is the first symbol of creatureliness to the man, and then it reflects back to the woman. If she Mm -hmm. has this exalted role as the cause of our rejoicing in our creatureliness, then it makes sense to tackle her first. Mm -hmm. Because if you can get her to fall, um, then the whole human family can. You've basically removed the prophylactic for idolatry. Yes. I think that's where I used it. Um, Okay. So Augustine is where I get annoyed with because he says that when he he says he's doing a literal reading of Genesis, but when he gets to this part, he is forced to say that the reason the devil attacks the woman is that this clearly shows that we cannot be tempted by the devil except through the animal part, which reveals, so to speak, the image or exemplification of woman in the one whole man. So woman becomes like the explanation of what happened becomes the symbol, Mm -hmm. which seems to be putting the cart before the horse. Like you need a good historical explanation. Then you can move to the allegorical. So, yeah. So, so what he's doing is taking the, the symbolism of man as mind and woman yeah. as body. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, well, this is showing us symbolically that we are tempted first through like our lower parts, yeah. but that's not actually a literal reading. Like that's <laughs> a symbolic reading. Yeah, it's using a symbolic reading, which could be justified. Like, yeah, sure, if we say that they're these symbols, then it could be true. Mm-hmm. But it's using the symbolic reading to explain a historical question. And right. that just seems mm-hmm. to be bad form. And also it goes against Augustine's other, like, awesome line in City of God. He says, in the light of our Lord's language, it is absurd to interpret male and female as symbols, either of the spirit that rules and the flesh that obeys, or of the rational soul that controls and the irrational appetite that is restrained, or the contemplative faculty that is higher, the active power which is lower, or of understanding in the mind and sensation in the body. So he's just like, forget all that. It is certain that male and female were created in the beginning exactly as we see and know them now as human beings of different sex. So he's just saying, 
stop with all that allegorizing, which I like. Not that you can't, but it's not a good justifying principle. No. Okay. So I think we have a better a better read here because um, because it makes sense why you would go after the one who most clearly reveals that man is not God if your whole point is to say you can be like God, mm-hmm. which is what the devil does say. Okay. So my contention here is that this is a sort of androgynous um, moment within the scriptures. You have – I mean you got to think about it this way. You have the constantly recognized – by the fathers I mean – idea that in the temptation of Eve, she's drawn apart from the man. And then another reflection that the man has neglected in some way the woman. Mm-hmm. So that whole line comes back. It is not good for man to be alone. Okay. Yeah, that's right. There's also this sudden sense that under the tree, it's like, where's Adam? Mm-hmm. You know, and this gets some evangelical reads, which are fine. But but it's not good that woman is alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because now she is experiencing herself in the world alone. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Ephraim of Syria makes a whole deal about this, that she like stole away from her husband to eat the fruit. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about how she, so one of the, one of the ways that gender is distinguished is that by the fathers, when they're reading this Genesis text is they are seeing Adam as being responsible for giving a law to Eve, namely don't eat the fruit. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they don't simply see Eve as breaking a rule in some kind of neutral way, like she's just a citizen of Eden and she's doing the bad thing. Mm -hmm. They see it as her asserting a different law. So for the fathers, especially John Chrysostom, um, they see her breaking the law as also asserting a male priority over and against the male. So she's essentially becoming male no, 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 you don't give the law. You're not the head. I will give the law. I will be the head. Well, I'll be a law unto myself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Augustine at some point called this, calls this like the invention of the private domain, which is very modern sound. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so she she is giving a, a her own law and in doing so is taking the prototypical male role, if you will, to herself. Um, and it goes the other way around too. Man in, so the story goes, she eats of the fruit because the devil says that it will make her like God. And she turns and gives the fruit to Adam. Adam is now in the position of the woman as she would have been in the beginning. Right, receiving the new law. Receiving the law. Yeah. And obeying. Mm-hmm. And this is comes up in the punishment given to Adam where he's not just punished because he broke the law. He's punished precisely because he listened to the voice of his wife. Which if you don't have this context, that mm-hmm. line seems really sexist. Like, <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to listen to her. Whatever she says, she's crazy. You know, something <laughs> like that. Uh, it's like, no, no, no. It, it, it's precisely because he is envying femininity and she is envying masculinity. There is a sudden exchange of roles where, where you know, I'll read Christopher because he's interesting on this. He says, um, after all, you, Adam, are the head of your wife and she has been created for your sake. But you have inverted the proper order. Not only have you failed to keep her on the straight and narrow, but you have been dragged down with her. And whereas the rest of the body should follow the head, the contrary has in fact occurred. The head following the rest of the body, turning things upside down. 
So there's a sort of primary gender confusion. Everything's upside down. Things are the wrong way. My point is not that you have to agree with exactly what they think is the roles here. The point mm -hmm. is that the roles are being exchanged. Mm -hmm. um, Ephraim Assyria says, because she believed the serpent, she ate first before Adam, thinking that she would be clothed in, clothed in divinity in the presence of the one from whom she as a woman had been separated. So you have everything there, right? In her separation, she was creaturely. In stealing away from the one from whom she was separated, she attempted to clothe herself in divinity, which was always known as a certain uh, sexlessness vis-a-vis -vis the sexual difference of the mm -hmm. creature. Um, okay, and I think that this is apparent also in the punishments that God gives for these sins, that they are punishments designed specifically to remind the, the punished of the original difference from which they have departed, right? Mm -hmm. So when God punishes Adam, it's, again, because you listen to the voice of your wife, and when Eve is punished, it's by um, a command that she will turn towards her husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. Um, and the, he will rule over and he you. Will rule over yeah. you. Right. So what was – it returns as a enforced uh, gender distinction. He's saying – God is saying, well, now this is how it is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, not as this extrinsic thing like – Let's just find some mean things to throw at Eve and Adam. Mm -hmm. um, but because they, in departing from um, gender distinction, are punished by being forced to experience that distinction. Yeah, and I, I think um, the interpretation that has made the most sense to me, and, and not specifically in the gender relationships, is that the, the curses of the fall i mean it sounds like god is upset that they broke his little rule and now he's making their lives unhappy and i, I think a more sophisticated way of understanding what genesis is doing um and what's going really going on is it's the the curse is a revelation of the natural consequence of sin yeah so it's not saying like oh and now 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 go suffer and like, I will determine your suffering for you and say, okay, you've turned yeah. away from the natural order and, and this is the curse. This is what follows from turning from the natural yeah, order. Totally. And so what was supposed to bring like original harmony and joy could still bring that, but in there, when it, when you depart from that original state, then it's going to be one of more toil and pain. Yeah. And I, and I experience. I didn't do this argument. I'll do it real quick, um, which is basically that one of the ways in which it's clear that male and female are something really distinct and not just like a gloss on a fundamental sameness is that God creates man and woman with two distinct acts right. of divine power as opposed to the animals, which he creates mm -hmm. all at once. So creates them according to their kind out of the earth, creates the fish according to their kind out of the sea, creates the birds according to their kind out of the air. When it comes to man, there's these two distinct acts. First he creates Adam, then he creates Eve. And this, I think, is a symbol, or rather just it helps us know that they are different fundamentally mm -hmm. and not simply different as a modification of a sexless type that precedes mm -hmm. them. Uh, sexless, yeah. So the punishments bear this out in some way because one of the punishments is that each each of the man and the woman are both punished by being forced to return in a painful way to that out of which they're made. So man, who is made out of the dust, that's his mm, distinct yeah. creation, 
is forced after his um, flirtation with androgyny to toil with the dust of the earth. Um, thorns and thistles will it bring forth for you. And so his punishment is literally to look and have to dig at his unique origin. Mm -hmm. You are this, you are dust. And that's how he ends the punishment for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So it's yeah. quite literally, um, I'm not like doing Kabbalah here. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> and, and with the woman, it's really interesting. I don't think people, I haven't heard this before, but it, it seems obvious that as man looks at the dust, she is supposed to turn to her husband. Your desire mm -hmm. shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Because again, in the creation of the woman, she was created out of the rib of Adam. Mm -hmm. The point is that there's two distinct acts. This is in distinction to something like uh, one of the Egyptian myths in which man and woman are created out of the same primal stuff, which is the semen of a god at some point, and then clay in another point. But the idea is where there you can entertain the idea that sexual difference is the modification of a more fundamental type into two sort of mm -hmm. shapes. Yeah, um, here, here you cannot because the, the very thing that they're made from is distinct. Is distinct. And so when they ignore that and try to go for a vision of man that flirts with divinity because this sex thing is just a is just an exchangeable reality that we can we can envy um, we can envy the others sort of or subsume difference or subsume or take away or destroy or anything like that that is punished precisely by like rubbing your face in it like you're going to be ruled by dirt you're going to be ruled by husband that's your punishment you better remember you're sexually different Mm -hmm. um, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Do I like it? Do I like toiling in the dirt? No. No. <laughs> Do I think it's cool? Yes. Um. So what I what I'm arguing here basically is that androgyny is is like I call it, it, androgyny is is how we attempt to become divine because yeah. we can't have separation we can't right. have distinction mm -hmm. so we have to either erase the other they don't exist yep. or we have to subsume the other um yep. subordinate or yep. subsume i mean that's pretty much what you see in all the other uh myths uh either like woman is subordinated or they're subsumed in there the same same thing and you've got uh a couple other things in the dissertation about uh like symbols of androgyny um i i think what is the most interesting so so you talk about the androgyny of the tree oh yeah very briefly um and and the tree i, I mean it's a very complex symbol and i hadn't considered that one before but it is the thing that has like both male and female parts within it yeah um and so the sin happens there but then they take the leaves of the androgynous plants and they cover themselves and that's a very definitive move to androgyny because now the sign of my distinction from you is now like my vulnerability yeah um and so i have to like protect from your move to be divine um and it's covered precisely in an image of androgyny mm -hmm. which you'll notice that God and his mercy actually replaces it with animal skin, mm -hmm. which becomes important later. So like it, it's maybe I should tell the story of the tree a little bit better than this. I don't know. Do you think we have time or should we? No. Okay. I think we should keep going. Okay. But um, suffice to say that it's a very fitting metaphor mm -hmm. for the woman to stand under an image 
of androgyny, of self-sufficient negation of the male and female in the one being, and to literally eat of it, right? So you become what you eat. Mm-hmm. Precisely because she was told by the serpent that it will make her divine mm-hmm. for this to be an act of loneliness apart from the man and the man apart from the woman, an act which subverts gender roles as they're understood, and then to be punished by a return to gender distinction that now is experienced as a pain, mm-hmm. whereas before it was the source of man's rejoicing. Totally. Before he said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which we give a lot of weight to, but we sometimes forget that what bone and flesh are is weakness. Mm-hmm. It's it's material stuff. It's the stuff that breaks and tears. And so Adam being enabled to rejoice in being made of such fragile material, like in his not being divine and not being sufficient and needing the other, um, his being able to rejoice was a great gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and he cast, he cast it away because what we really seem to want when we sin is to have security come from ourselves so that we no mm-hmm. longer need to be open towards the gift of the other. We no longer need to be open towards God. Right. It's fitting, I think, that the first act of technological production follows the fall, where we we get together and we sow some leaves to cover up our fundamental need mm-hmm. um, for the other to make us who and what we are. We cover that up in a symbol of androgyny and pretend to self-sufficiency. It's also the case that Adam hides in the trees um, when he's hiding from God. So again, that relationship, which is one of, at first, receptivity towards divine gift, once you try to be divine by through this uh, turn towards primal androgyny, now your relationship to God is very scary mm-hmm. because you were supposed to be divine, but now you're on the same theoretical playing field as the guy that actually is divine. And you realize you're that you're die. not. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very inadequate. So that that's sort of, um, I think, a, a reading of the creation and the fall that shows that Genesis is an attack on a anthropology of a sinful anthropology of primal androgyny. Word. Yeah. Well, at one point I wanted to bring it to the 19th century. Do it. But, uh, well, maybe if we just talk about, let me see, what do we got? What do we got? I think we should talk about the, the last bit, uh, idolatry. And then yeah. I mean, we're kind of, we've kind of, moved in that in general um like if the if the narrative of the bible is to um yeah to prevent uh idolatry mm-hmm. i mean this is the the big sin of mm-hmm. the israelites mm-hmm. um to keep the israelites worshiping the one true god um then you can also read this as being an anti idolatry text and and we have a tendency to i mean humans have a tendency to worship other things but i think the ultimate culmination of that movement is to worship ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, and you can see this in its most basic way that if it's the case that eating the fruit like what was the temptation eat the fruit and you shall be like god mm -hmm. what this means is that everything that adam and eve have they received from god to take the fruit themselves and to eat it is to then have those things by their own volition. So idolatry in man, the idolatry of man for himself is always something out of fear. Mm-hmm. It's saying that I am not certain that God will keep loving me. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain that the Father will continue to provide. I am 
I need to grab that for myself. And so I'm going to take, I mean, mm-hmm. it, he stretches out his hand and takes the fruit so that now this action is, is something that confirms, my own action confirms the ability for me to secure my whole world for myself. Mm-hmm. And it's significant that it's securing the individual's world for the first time and not the world of the man and the woman. Um, it's done alone. And it also follows that the um, there's this concept throughout the Old Testament that you become like what you worship. Mm-hmm. So this whole narrative in which the man and the woman kind of become like the trees, mm-hmm. like they hide in the trees, they wear the trees, yeah. they are kind of becoming androgynous like the trees. Um, the point seems to be that we try to use the material world to make ourselves totally secure the way God is secure to take his sufficiency. But we end up just becoming like that Mm -hmm. thing, that idol that we use to attempt to attain divinity and obviously not like unto God himself, Mm -hmm. which is why we're so scared of God because we can't compete anymore. And the the whole irony of the Genesis account is that a man is destined from the beginning to be like God. In fact, like he's told you, like you are like God, like in, in male and female, you're um, made in God's image and likeness. Uh, and so even the temptation of the devil itself is a, a lie. He's implying a lack that was never there in the beginning. Right. Like you are, you are not like God, but you need to become. You need to be like him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really a curse against God as if, as if he was not providing for us perfectly. And there's another Jewish tradition where it says that the devil insinuates that God also ate of the fruit and that's why he's God. Mm. So he says, the creator of the world took of the fruit and ate. Now, if you also take of the fruit and ate, then you will be like God. Mm. And that's what's really important about all idolatry is it's always a lie about divinity, which is to say it is itself fake. It's a production, right? So Mm -hmm. you can become it precisely because it's no longer what it really is. Right. Um, Divinity is something attainable through fruit eating. So... Divinity has been devalued and thus man can even imagine himself becoming it. Obviously where divinity is held in right regard, you cannot envy it because you cannot possibly fathom it. I mean, well, what, what divinity is, is, is one, there cannot be more than one mm -hmm. all. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, is so, so in order for man to become divine, he has to be creature and that's, yeah, I mean, this is just the the idea God has of to be creature. Uh, man, well, man has to. Man, there is only one divine. So if there yeah. is another, yeah. Uh, if if man exists, the only way that he's able to participate in divinity is not something that he can grasp at. Sure, um, it's through accepting his own creatureliness yep. and God condescending and lifting him up into his own divinity. I mean, this is what we understand that like salvation is like the yep. question are you saved is not are you going to go to this happy place called heaven when you die it's like are you <laughs> it's 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 being incorporated into the trinity it's being lifted up into the divine yeah. it is theosis yeah 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 well i think we should talk about 19th century, 19th century and yes. really just primal androgyny now then because that's a very broad framework um but I'll say a few things his- historically to maybe justify this this leap into right now, our mm-hmm. modern age, which is that this doctrine, male and female, he created them, was never uncontested. So it wasn't simply like you just drop it in the Torah and then boom, everyone's got a new construction. Yeah. 
like within Jewish literature or Jewish commentary itself, you can see these two distinct traditions, primal androgyny and um, um, what you might call sexual difference. Mm -hmm. And the primal androgyny for, for the ancients um, got pretty literal. So there's all sorts of stories. I don't actually know exactly how old they are um, of Adam being an androgen in a literal sense. So like the Aristophanes um, mm-hmm. version. Yeah. Having the, both sex organs, the, both sex organs. And then there's some kind of separation that occurs. Um, and then in, um, er, in the story of early Christianity as the Greek and Roman worlds are converted mm-hmm. to Christianity, you have a, um, the arising, a, what we now call Gnostic, Uh, reaction, which was sort of a syncretic, um, trying to, trying to make these things fit with what we already have. Right. Right. Which everyone was guilty of a little bit because that's just Uh what you do, right? You're trying to make the Roman and the Greek world Christian. Yeah. Um, looking back on it now, we can see clear distinctions like, well, that was a bad way of trying to get the two to work together. But Mm -hmm. for the Gnostics, one of the ways that they attempted to do this harped around that, that problem of, um, sexual difference Mm -hmm. because, because there was a certain resemblance of Christianity to the Greek notion of a future divinity, a coming divinization. Yeah. Whereas for the Greeks, it was always a restoration though of a lost age, right? So you, you were gods, you were denied that divinity that's proper to you and you're going to, and maybe you can restore that in some way. Um, Whereas for the Christians, it's all gift. So it's saying like, you are never by nature gods, but you are invited to participate in divine life in a totally mysterious analogy. Um, And these two things had a certain similarity, but actually sexual difference became like like the point at which the difference was very clear between these. Mm -hmm. Because you had the Gnostics saying that, well, Christianity means that sexual difference is obliterated. Um, so that we can be restored to this fundamentally androgynous state. So we're being freed from matter. We're being freed mm-hmm. from a fundamentally bad creation, a world in which we're being lifted up out of to another world. Um, Gnosticism as like an escape from a bad world or a bad God or something. Matter, yeah, you know, material things. And so there you have, um, a kind of ba- a theological battle happening about man and woman. So if you read some of the Gnostic texts, there's these really, which seemed to me super bizarre that anyone who was like a hip, like a cultist was like, well, check out these Gnostic texts. I'm like, these seem extremely chauvinistic. Um, and I think I understand it more because there is things like in the gospel of Thomas, you have this vision that only when the female becomes male, will the kingdom of heaven be upon you? <laughs> or there's, I think it's gospel of Thomas, but it might be something else. Um, the idea that the disciples approach Jesus and they say, how is, um, how are women going to be saved? I think. And Jesus says, I will make Mary male. So you're good. Oh. <laughs> so there's a certain male, like all women will become male and that's how they'll enter mm-hmm. the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So I, I guess the point is that, um, so, so this is the interpretation that we're, asserting like 
sexual difference. And we think that this is the tradition that has been kept with the church, but it shouldn't also be a surprise that if we look back and we find these androgynous texts and androgynous interpretations of Genesis are going to be there because it's the merging of the pagan and the Christian world together. And um, yeah, no one, those, those texts haven't lasted. They've kind of stayed in Gnosticism, but they resurfaced again in the 19th century yeah, the, I mean, sh- there are other things between there yeah. and then, but yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, you really want to talk about it. I, yeah, I do. I'm excited. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, so there's a, a text that I read, um, the image of the androgen in the 19th century. Uh, last name's Busset? I don't know. I was going to bust. Bust. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> um, so uh, this was... This text was basically talking about the the popularity of the image of the androgen, um, why it became so popular again in the 19th century. And part of it is because of a, a rise interest in the occult and the taking these Gnostic texts and looking back at them. Um, and the reason why I wanted to, to bring this up is really just because it, it kind of hits home that... Uh, androgyny and trying to be divine go hand in hand mm-hmm. um like thematically they just go together um Gotta so get- there was an earlier comment that you were making and I, I wanted to put this in there back then but um uh, august Compt, um who's just hilarious <laughs> well, yeah. i i wrote a paper on him and man it's just He's, he's a wild philosopher. Um, he wanted to create essentially his own religion of reason to replace uh, all other religions. And part of his kind of myth of reason um, had this uh, like future androgynous goal. He spoke of the future androgyny of women um, who would kind of play as like almost like a top dog role. Um, but it's because uh, working off of the symbolism of man being mind and woman being matter well as soon as she receives reason then she will be the androgynous whole she Mm -hmm. will be perfection and she can like produce fruit within herself like she's going to be the tree right right yeah they had all sorts of um returns and you see it you see it in all sorts of places i mean i think um the Saint Simoniacs, I don't know if I'm saying that right, were another one that thought that um, Jesus was the male Messiah, but there was going to be a female Messiah so that there could be a proper um, androgynous meeting of the two. And so they actually went out looking for the female <laughs> Messiah to make her Pope alongside like the, the male Pope at the time. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, it was a wild it was a wild ride. Um, but one of the reasons why the author is uh asserting the popularity of the symbol of the androgen, at least in the first half of the nineteenth century, is because of the rise of the myth of progress. Mm. Um so uh so taking this a uh, a a cult or I think it's I think it's an image from Kabbalah, right? The uh androgynous Adam. Yeah. So the the myth there, or the way that that text interprets the Torah, is that um, you have this androgynous Adam, and then there is a, a split 
of Adam into the multitude of all the people who come forth totally. from him. But this is this is seen as a fall, a rupture of mm -hmm. original unity, which mm -hmm. is the good thing. And so in creation is, uh, I mean, this, our story of uh, history is this like eventual return back to the androgynous same yep. of all these like moving like multiple parts returning to this original androgyny which kind of fits this this uh the mentality of the early 19th century like we can unite humanity and totally. the reason we're going to draw all these uh, different parts together into this like androgynous body of the human race yep. and you can see that this is a like a move towards divinity like higher totally. and higher progress like we are climbing up the the ladder of reality into more and more power more and more reason i mean we're just it's this view of uh yeah ascent into the divine totally yeah i mean you have to get over this pesky sex thing if you're ever going to be god and, and um <laughs> definitely the um enlightenment and really prior unleashed another drive towards um it kind of grasped divinity in man um, who you, there's a lot going on here, right? Because it's, it's the birth of liberalism. It's the rise of um, the nation states. Mm -hmm. It's certainly the creation of a world in which if you can say anything, it's that people are no longer believing to any degree that their lives are assured by God, but that they need to, through technology and progress, carve out for man himself his own security. Um, so you see this as, you know, leading to the technological and industrial revolutions. Um, and androgyny was always useful as a a symbol for this because not only that what you mentioned, which is which is quite right, that it's a progression towards a future divinity. Um, and I would also say towards a lack of need mm -hmm. um, so that we're no longer a weak, needy um, people, but we in fact are our own gods in some way. But it was also present in just creating a justification for our nation states. So our liberal mm -hmm. nation states were being built and they're basically being built over and against all of this difference. So, I mean, we've mentioned this a hundred times, but like in France, you're destroying a diversity of local languages. You're centralizing mm -hmm. power. Everyone's conscripted. You have a, um, a basic idea that like the life of a people can come from a singular source. Well, this is problematic because sexual difference is always problematic for any kind of, um, attempt to have self-sufficiency within the human mm -hmm. because it always speaks about that being a lie. It always says that, well, every male is insufficient vis-a-vis -vis every female and vice versa. And so you had the birth of androgynous ideals like the citizen. And this is quite literal in like after the French revolution that you have images of the androgen being like, um, the new citizen is one who has sort of surpassed these limitations of sexual difference. Mm -hmm. Um, but also the person that can be more easily exchanged for anyone else. Like it's like, there's no fundamental difference in right. everyone's a Frenchman. Everyone's an American citizen. It's, um, it's a useful tool for asserting as it were the fundamental equality of all the citizens of, of sort of attaining that ideal and myth. Mm -hmm. Um, because there is a way in which like liberalism would work a lot better if we were all 
we really all were androgynous, mm-hmm. right? Because then, like, a law would would affect everyone, affect exactly everyone in an equal way. All of these crises we have about, like, how do we deal with children? How do we deal with different relations of power? How do we deal with difference? Mm-hmm. Um, why can't we just get a freaking law that works for everybody? And we try again and again. Um, all of that would make a lot more sense if we were what liberalism quite literally says we are in its founding myths, like these yeah. individuals whose the thing that is most fundamental about them is that they're individual humans yeah. whose sex is a sort of interesting modification of something that's fundamentally you know, the more same. fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to bring it back to the beginning of, of the podcast, um, the point is that we're seeing these patterns reemerge and they're yeah, not right. new, but the way that they manifest themselves are new. Yeah. Um, so, so you see, uh, the symbol of the androgen coming back uh, mm-hmm. again and again, and the way that the world is asserted is different. So at least in the 19th century, I mean, this isn't like, well, at least in the, the 19th century, it's now colored by the Christian story. Mm-hmm. So you can't go back uh, because that's now part of human history. So it's going to take on a fundamentally different shape. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a different construction, but it helps us to see the overall pattern and that what we're experiencing today really isn't anything totally new. No, I mean, the, the, if, if anything, it's, a, it's an accentuation, right? That you you look at your flesh, this difference, this this limitation. I mean, you got to think of how like, we are told things that are patently untrue as children. Like you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. (laughs) And then the actual experience of our flesh, I don't just mean our sex. I mean like our, our being here Mm -hmm. is that that's, that's not true. Yeah. You can't be who you want to be. You you can't because you are who you are. Mm -hmm. You, there's a givenness to reality. That is where we are set up within liberal education to be repulsed by the givenness of reality as something that negates all of our dreams, all of our hopes, all of our infinite possibilities are suddenly shriveled down into this particularity, mm-hmm. um, w- which becomes the enemy for us because it, our bodies essentially prevent us from being the liberal idea of the individual who can actu- actualize his, his sort of limitless um, potential uh, drive for self-interest. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which you could say, okay, there's there's a lot of difference, right, in the current transgender moment that obviously there's like a medical thing that wasn't going on. There is a mm-hmm. like literalness to it. Like there's not an appeal to myth in right. an explicit way or what we would say is obviously an appeal to myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this fundamental sense that there is a divinity denied to us and that the world of these constructions are these constructions of power are what are preventing us from attaining it. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't call it divinity. I get that. It's just a it's just a future peace, a future kingdom, a goodness out there that we don't have, mm-hmm. and that if we could just get rid of these constructions, um, we would have it. And. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me to be um, basically a, a mythical stance. Like, the given is not really given, it is a fall. Um, now, I'm not trying to speak to any particular experience, because obviously I think that that can be the genuine experience of the body. 
right? Which is that what is given is wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. But when we think of that as a social reality, so not just the, the particular experience, but the sense generally that the given body can be wrong and modified to become the desired body. Mm -hmm. When this is basically the, the moderating common sense of our sexual politics, then I think that what we are presuming is that the body is a result of a fall, right? It's a sort of contingent thing that happened to the human that can be modified this way or that. And that the, and that there is a, um, well, that it's not good. Um, that it's, uh, but even when it is considered good, it's only considered good extrinsically. Like, Hey, I got a good body. Yeah. You know, isn't that cool? Which is like what transgender people are right about cisgender privilege insofar as it's basically transgenders. It's just basically transgenderism, but with the right body. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's still like a contingent thing, whether, um, you happen to get sexual difference in a way that you like, it's mm -hmm. still, um, so, so I think that there's a, there is a return to a, a fundamental negation that like this maleness and this femaleness is not a given. Um, it is not very good. It is not of the order of creation. It is of the order of the fall and as such open to perfection and redemption by the work of human hands. Like we can fix this. We can mm -hmm. fix this mistake. Well, however it works in a particular case, I think this is the general, the general move, which is certainly what you see in the 19th century on a more like kind of weirdo mystical level. Yeah. Like we can <laughs> fix the kind of limitation of spiritual humanity by, by um, abolishing male and female. And then what you certainly see in the myth myths that we mentioned. Um, right. And I, for me, this also explains why within transgenderism, within Gnosticism, within uh, the myths, and I think within the 19th century as well, though with some notable exceptions, woman is always the target of this. Sometimes we really want to talk about it like it's all it's all just gender that's in flux. Um, but it seems to be that when we back up a little bit, it's woman is somehow the, the primary object of that. Like, how do I say it? I mean that there's this strong identification with women where you want to say, I want to, I am a woman. I want to be a woman, or you have this problem with femininity in a way that seems to be way more accentuated in our culture than masculinity. Um, in fact, usually masculinity seems to be questioned more in terms of the femininity that you think you're, that, that one thinks they are. Is this just another way that of, of saying that the, the feminine has been like the big question, the big problem yeah, I mean, like all when, of human history? I mean, like that, that seems to be like the most confusing thing for people to understand. It seems like it's the thing that is, I mean, Everyone writes about women. Nobody writes about totally. Men. Or like when it came up in its own guise within like the communists of the 20th century, it was the woman question, right? So everyone's mm -hmm. talking about the woman, the woman question. Yeah, I think uh, I remember reading in the, the 19th not the man century question. thing again that like androgyny was seen as like a way for women's liberation in particular. Yeah, it was briefly, but then feminists kept realizing, rightly, no, that... No, that just makes us not a thing at all. Totally, it erases women, um, which obviously... I mean, it's basically Illich's of... critique at that point, like that, what they were catching on. Like, actually, an androgynous society is not helpful. 
Yeah, because the androgen, surprise, surprise, always ends up looking like a guy, yeah. not a girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like women have sort of more to negate in some ways. Um, but like even in the images, like the image of whether it's the occultists, the Gnostics, the various pictures that the alchemists draw, it's always things end up looking more male, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and this is the great suspicion of feminism over like the trans moment right now is that it is only in theory a negation of gender for the sake of a freedom and a fluidity. It is in fact a negation of women as such as a category. It's like men can still basically live and move and have their privilege. Um, and now women can also be appropriated within the male world. Um, very exactly. Mm-hmm. And that you know, the anomalies of some women becoming men don't really make up for that distinction. Well, I think we should probably move to kind of concluding thoughts sure, and yeah. uh, kind of wrap up the whole series as a whole. So we've kind of, we've, we've, we've jumped around a little bit. Um, so we began with queer theory, Judith Butler. Uh, then we moved to Ivan Illich and then ending with Genesis and the creation account. Mm-hmm. So how is it that we can string all of those together? Um, I I think the themes that we are talking about today show up um, in all of them. So the the theme of the androgen uh, we're seeing with Butler because she's uh, asserting that there's like a fundamental identity lessness. There is no identity, which is another way of kind of positing a fundamental androgyny that you can just construct in any way that you want um and so for her she's really a a hardcore construction that construction goes all the way down because there is no uh like given besides the construction there is no fundamental difference um and so that's how she's uh constructing the world and, and kind of well one of my takeaways from from butler is that okay well we want to like negate the idea that there's no identity, that it's construction all the way down because it's nonsensical. But she is right that we do construct worlds. And I think Illich really drew that out for us. And so you see the theme of the androgen pop back up again. Mm-hmm. So in the move from gendered worlds, and so that's one construction, mm-hmm. into economic sex, which does... Uh, yeah, the move to economic sex is is moved, moving more towards an androgynous ideal. I mean, it doesn't negate that there are men and women, but it's this assumption that they're fundamentally the same and can be treated exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and then we move into Genesis and the creation account, which is is its own construction, um, its own telling of of the story. It's its own. Uh, myth so we kind of have these different uh different ways of constructing gender that we can start comparing now that we can see them more more clearly for what they are yeah yeah and it seems that with our description thus far sexual difference is a great protector of man from the sin of idolatry Mm mm-hmm And another way to describe the same thing is that sexual difference allows man to rejoice in being a creature. And this means that sexual difference isn't just something to observe as a fact out there, though it is that. 
it is also something that works, that does, that mm -hmm. moves. Like all of this tension and drama over sexual difference is obviously because when it is lived, it achieves something. It achieves right. a certain world. It does something to us. And what I'm claiming and what you're claiming is that what it does is it protects us from idolatry by affirming us in our creatureliness. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens wherever, wherever it's um, valued. And then the opposite is true or the con inverse, the converse, something else is true, um, which is that wherever you see the negation of this difference, right? You see at the same time a longing for something beyond the given of our creatureliness, a longing for divinity, idolatry in a strict sense, um, that you're never going to have these motions apart from the other because sex is always a stumbling block towards idolatry. Mm -hmm. And idolatry can only ever be had in a convincing illusion if you can convincingly get rid of sex as something real. Mm -hmm. um, insofar as you are still keenly aware that you are man and woman, then you are keenly aware that you are not God. Right. You are created. You have a limitation. You are separated out and named. You belong to someone, namely the Lord. Um, you have got to destroy sexual difference to get beyond God, to get out of his hand. And I think that sometimes Catholics are very given to just describe things as like, well, the reason you're doing this is because you really don't love God or whatever. Um, so I'm not going to say that exactly. I'm going to put more <laughs> words between all of those words. Because it's <laughs> what I'm going to say is that we caused not a controversy, but some something of a difficulty of understanding, and it's my fault, in describing the conservative position regarding like biology as, as naive. And I think now maybe we're in a better position to look back at this. The question is, how come, if it is the case that gender is something so obvious that we've always known, as you'll often hear, man and woman, mm -hmm. how come it's so easy to confuse people? How come it's so easy to, to not see what is apparently scientifically available, which is you know immediately tangible to our senses and all this? And I hope we can see now that the construction of worlds is really what it says. It's a construction of a world. So it's the way reality appears to mm -hmm. us. And, and in some ways, the way reality really is to us. And if we construct apart from that help of the doctrine, that revelation that goes against the current of primal androgyny, which is so obviously tempting to humanity, um, those things that might appear have previously appeared as obvious facts pointing to something substantial about the way we were created to be like all the way down, um, become what you might expect. They appear as modifications of something else. They appear more as variations of the androgen than they do as descriptions of the created person mm -hmm. or of the human person as such. Um, I think this is just to describe what's obviously happening here. Why, why are the conservatives not convincing? Um, it is my opinion, and we'll see how it plays out, that you will not have gender sanity without conversion to Catholicism. 
And the reason for this is that it, in its preservation of the biblical doctrine, male, female, create, he created them. It's not just preserving like something that can be otherwise achieved by science or like in deeper investigations into hormones mm -hmm. or something. It is preserving a world like the kind of worlds Illich described, but, but uh, I think fuller in some ways is preserving mm -hmm. a world in which it makes sense and is good that we are in fact man and woman all the way down, that it is worth rejoicing over that we are different all the way down mm -hmm. because at yeah. most, I think conservatives right now are trying to show through science that something is true that we hate and don't want to be true, that we're not God, that we're different. So the question is, okay, what total world, what total conversion is necessary? Not only to know that you're a man or woman, but to say how good it is that I am not everything, how good it is that I'm not God, how good it is that I am negated in this way and that way and limited in that way and this way. Um, how good it is that I need the other in order to be who I am and that the other needs me. Like these are fundamental things that sexual difference is revealing and, and forces us to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, but without a total vision in which, um, precisely those goods are valued and taught, like it is good to be in need. It is good to be weak. It is good to need the other. It is good to not be stuck in a you know, endless stream of progress or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because, that's what the uh, church offers is that total vision. I mean, sexual, sexual difference, it, it means something. Mm -hmm. It bespeaks something. Um, and so as we've seen, there's different ways of constructing what gender is speaking, what it means. Um, and so I, I think it would make sense that we would rebel against uh, a meaning that we find distasteful. Um, if we are told that we are gods and we can be anything that we want to be, um, to be like thrust back into, uh, gender. I, I, gods I, who have periods. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure where I was going with that thought. In fairness, gods with, with periods is probably not like an encouraging or helpful thing to help you work out a thought. Seems distracting. Yeah, I think the coffee just ran out. <laughs> oh, no. Well, all right. I think we could probably wrap it up, right? So there mm -hmm. it is. That's the initial the initial swing, the initial take. Um, I hope that it, at the very least, gives us all the sense of what's at stake and that what we are talking about is something total. We're talking about worlds. We're talking about mm -hmm. the city of God and the city of man. We're talking about a total decision and not something that is simply going to be figured out by just, you know, getting one of the details right. Um, so thank you very much. I've enjoyed having them here. Hello, all you lovely people that we can't see. Oh, we should say we're doing a, um, live Q and a. Yeah. 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 So we're doing a live Q and a, um, next week. Maybe we don't have a date. Well, whenever, whenever it is, we'll put it in the description. Put it in the description. We'll also put a link to that essay, the, if I can find it. Yeah. The androgen essay. Um, and please send any questions you have either by email, mark at newpolity, maria at newpolity.com. Mm -hmm. Um, or we'll try to keep track of all the comments. Or the discord. Or the discord, which we apparently have. Yeah. <laughs> Huge for us. Um, and hopefully we can clear up any, any difficulties because we realize it's a really, a really difficult topic and 
generally it's hard to anticipate what people are actually thinking when you're just talking to a camera. Yeah. So, that's true. <laughs> all right. Thank you for all your patience. We'll be back with season two of the politics of gender until then. Goodbye.